Heavenly Father, we can't thank you enough for your word that you, the living God, speak to sinners like we are. Lord, we need your help, though, if we are to understand your word. You do speak through your word, but so often your word falls on deaf ears. Lord, we pray that you may help us as we look at the words of the Apostle Peter this morning. We pray that we may understand what he says and that it may be helpful for us as we seek to live our lives for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't like being submerged in water. I don't like going to the pool. I don't like going to the ocean. It's not that I have a fear of water as such. I can swim. I learned to swim when I was younger. But it's all a bit of a hassle for me now to go to the beach or to go into a pool. You've got to, of course, get ready to go. You've got to make sure you take a change of clothes, you take a towel, and then you've got to go there. You've got to hop in, stay in long enough that it's all worthwhile. And then, of course, you get out and you smell of chlorine or smell of seawater, and then you've got to have a shower, you've got to get changed again. And it's all just a little bit too much effort to get completely submerged in water for little profit. Whereas Jill, my wife, she loves going to the beach. She loves uh, going and having a swim. And, and so there's this tension in our household of she wanting to go to the beach uh, and I am happy to sit on the sand but not actually enter into the water. But water for some people can be more than just simply uh, something that's distasteful, something that's a hassle to get submerged in. Water can also be scary. I don't find water so much uh, as scary as some people because I do know how to swim, although if I was out at sea for a long time in the water, yes, of course, I would drown eventually and it would get quite scary. And the Bible knows that water is scary, that water can be quite scary. And we see this early on in the Bible. If we start at Genesis, it's not very long before water comes as a threat against the people who live on the earth. And that, of course, is with Noah. With Noah, he's there on the earth, and there are a lot of people who are uh, sinning, living unrighteously, living not God's way. And so what does God threaten to do? He threatens to send water. Now, water doesn't sound too scary if someone says, I'm going to spray you with the hose, but if someone keeps sending more and more water, so much that it actually starts to rise in your house, and take over. It is very scary indeed. And that's what we're going to firstly look at this morning is Noah and this water of judgment that comes upon him. If you've got a church bulletin there, you can see my main points. And my first is about Noah was saved through the water of judgment. And that's in our passage here in 1 Peter chapter 3. We've been working slowly through 1 Peter and we're about to take a break uh, for Christmas. So this is the last sermon on 1 Peter for this year. But we've come to the end of chapter 3, and there we saw Noah mentioned last week, a very difficult passage that I hope I made a little clearer, and we got a right understanding of what was being spoken about Noah there. But he continues to talk about Noah, and this week he talks about Noah's salvation through water. And it's there in uh, verse 20, uh, halfway through. So last week we looked at that uh, first half of verse 20, where we read um, the end of the sentence, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah when the ark was being built. And then I want to concentrate on what comes after that to the end of the, um, end of the chapter. 
where it says, In it, that's the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. In the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Noah was saved through a water of judgment. Noah was a person who was on the earth and he heard this warning of God. God spoke to him and warned him that judgment was coming and a particular kind of judgment, a judgment of water was coming. And what did Noah do? He trusted God's word. He saw no evidence that a water of judgment was coming. He didn't see clouds coming. It took him a long time to build the ark with dry uh, skies and uh, there was no water around. But he trusted God's word that God was sending a water of judgment. And he didn't just trust God's word. He made sure that his faith was put into action. He trusted God's word and he did something. He did what God had told him to do. And what was that? to build this ark, to build this massive boat that would take a whole lot of animals in it as well as him and his family and that they would be saved. So he laboured at that uh, ark building project, a massive project for him to do, as a response of his faith in God's word that judgment was coming. And then what happened? Well, the judgment did indeed come. That watery judgment came and Noah was saved through water. That's what it says there in the text. At the end of verse 20, uh, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Now there's another translation that could be taken from this text that it's they were saved by water. So the water actually saved Noah, which is what some translators try to, um, well, some interpreters of this passage say is happening here, that water saved Noah. And there is a sense that that is true. What happened with the water? Well, the water came and it lifted up the ark and Noah and his family were saved by the water. But if you look at the context of the passage about the flood, the water is not seen to be a good thing. The water is seen to be a very bad thing. The punishment of God coming upon sinful men on the earth. And so I think it's more appropriate to see this as being saved through water. The waters of judgment came and Noah went through them, went over them and through them. I mean, there would have been massive waves if you just consider the whole earth is completely flooded. Uh, it would have been a pretty stormy time out at sea. A lot of water coming over Noah and he is being saved through that water. So how is Noah's salvation through water relevant for us, though? Why does Peter pick up on this, uh, this story here in the New Testament and want to bring it to the, uh, the Christians' attention who are reading uh, 1 Peter? Well, he tells us that, through the, that the water that saved Noah is also a symbol for us, a symbol particularly for our baptism. That's what it says there. We read from the end of verse 20 where it says, In it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Peter is bringing up Noah's baptism in water, that water of judgment that comes over him, and bringing it in to relate to the Christian's baptism as well. And so my second main point this morning is, Christians are symbolically saved through a water of judgment too. 
Christians are symbolically saved through a water of judgment too. How is Noah's salvation through water a symbol for our salvation as well? Well, just like Noah, Christians are warned that a judgment for sin is coming. Before you are a Christian, you are told, God is going to judge you for what you've done. A judgment is coming. That judgment will come when you die and you are called before God's throne and he will punish you for what you have done. You will be punished by God's wrath for eternity in hell. That is the message that Christians hear. And just like Noah heard this message of judgment, a Christian also, like Noah, looks for the way out that God provides. Noah was told there is a way to escape this judgment, and he was told that is through the ark. We as Christians are also told there is a way out, just like Noah, and that is through Jesus' death. Jesus is our ark in which we cling to the ark and the cross for that forgiveness that we need. Through repenting of our sins and belief that Jesus died for us, we are saved from the judgment that we have been warned about. We haven't seen the judgment, just like Noah hadn't seen the judgment that was coming, but we trust God's word that a judgment is coming, and we'd better listen to God and do what he says if we are to escape that judgment. And then, just like Noah, we have a watery baptism. So... Noah had a literal baptism through this water of judgment there, and we also have a baptism as well. We have this time where we go into water and experience God's judgment there. It symbolises God's judgment coming over us. When you go into water and stay underwater, it is not a healthy place to be. As I've spoken about before, I'm not that scared of water, but if I go underwater and stay there for even a couple of minutes... I start to panic greatly. And so when we are baptised by immersion, it is a symbol for God's judgment water passing over us. That we have been sinners and that we need to die with Christ and have the judgment of God poured out upon Christ. And when we do that in baptism, when we are baptised, the judgment waters come over the top of us. Now, of course, this is very hard to picture if you understand that baptism is by sprinkling. This is why I am an immersionist. I believe that baptism is immersion by immersion only. Uh, There are many other texts in the Bible that also support baptism by immersion, and the word baptize itself does. But it makes sense here. This text only makes sense that a watery judgment has come over us if it is by immersion. If it's by sprinkling, how's that scary? It's just like having a shower in the morning. But if you go into a baptism and the minister doesn't pull you up, there is that little bit of fear if he doesn't let you come up. There is fear in going completely under the water. And so we have in our baptism this wonderful picture, just like Noah passed through a water of judgment, we also pass through a water of judgment as well. But we've got to be careful here. Because we can start to think that baptism saves us. In fact, the text seems to say that as well. Look at verse 21. And this water symbolises baptism that now saves you. So does going under the water save you 
from God's judgment. No, it's simply a picture for that fact that we are already saved from God's judgment through the death of Jesus Christ. And so that brings me to my third main point this morning. Christians are not saved by baptism. Baptism is only a picture of what has already happened. And Peter actually clarifies this. He says something that sounds like baptism saves, and then just in case you make misunderstand him, he clarifies it. What does he say in verse 21? And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Clarification, not the removal of dirt from the body. The water that you go under, which removes dirt from you, that doesn't save you. Going underwater and coming up again, it doesn't save you. Not the removal of dirt from the body. A baptism doesn't save. But people do love to attach salvation to baptism. And the Roman Catholic Church is a classic example of that. By their official church teachings, they say, you must be baptised if you are to have salvation. You must be baptised. And of course, they don't necessarily do it by submersion, but they uh, do it by uh, sprinkling. But they say that the baptism taught by God is something that is necessary for salvation. That's why you get it done while you're young. You get it over and done with so that you are safe for the rest of your life. And I can see how people can get uh, a misunderstanding out of this, that baptism actually saves because of how closely linked baptism is to salvation. It's a work that Christians are expected to do. And so if all Christians are baptised, then it starts to uh, lead you down this path of, well, if all Christians are baptised, then the baptism must be the thing that saves all Christians. And it's an easy thing to start confusing that matter. You just think for an example of what makes a person an employee of a company. Is it the fact that the person does what employees do at the company? They do the work that employees do. Does that make a person an employee at the company? If you show up at that workplace and you do the work, let's just say it's at a factory, you sit there all day assembling cars together on a factory assembly line, does that make you an employee of the company? Or is the fact that the boss says you're an employee that makes you an employee of the company? Because it is possible to be an employee of a company and not actually be there in the assembly line, be a lazy employee and not do the work. But generally speaking, you are doing the work if you're an employee. But just because someone is there on the assembly line doesn't make them an actual employee. What makes them an employee is the fact that they have been employed by the employer. And it's the same with us as Christians. What makes you a Christian? Is it the fact that you do Christian things like baptism? Or is it the fact that God says you are a Christian? Because there are many people who do Christian things. But are they actually Christians? There are many people who have been baptised. But does that mean that they actually are Christians? Just doing the things that Christians do doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is whether God says you are a Christian, whether the Father says you are one of his children. And so it's easy to start thinking that baptism saves because it is so closely linked to Christianity. All Christians should be baptised. If you're not baptised and you're a Christian, something's wrong. Why not? 
You're supposed to do what God commands, and God commands you to be baptized. So if you're not baptized, then there's something up, and we need to address that. But generally speaking, all Christians are baptized, and so we can start to think that baptism saves, but it doesn't. uh, Peter says, not the removal of dirt from the body. That doesn't save you. So what does? What does save you if baptism doesn't save you? Well, that brings me to my fourth main point from what Peter is saying here. Christians are saved by the pledge of a good conscience. Continue in verse 21. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but what saves you? The pledge of a good conscience to God. The pledge of a good conscience to God is what saves you. What is that? Well, you pledge something that you promise to do. You pledge to serve God. With a good conscience, you're saying, I am going to serve you, God, from now on. And I'm going to serve you by repenting of my sins and believing that Jesus Christ died for me. That the judgment that I deserve was poured out on Christ at the cross. And so I pledge to serve you by repentance and I pledge to serve you by faith. And it's interesting that this is so closely uh, related there with baptism because that's what we do at baptisms, don't we? Not always, but generally when you are baptised, you are asked to profess your faith before the people that are gathered there. You affirm that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You pledge your life to Christ publicly in front of a lot of people. You've done it privately, but now you do it publicly at baptism. And so it's this pledge that I will serve God, a a commitment that I am repentant for my sins and I believe Jesus died for me. Now, it could could also be translated another way here, the pledge of a good conscience, by uh, that word pledge could also mean appeal here. And so some commentators uh, get very worked up about this, whether it's pledge or appeal of a good conscience to God. And so their, their understanding is that when it says appeal for a good conscience, what you're doing is you're asking God for forgiveness, that you'll have a clean conscience, a good conscience before God through Jesus' death for you. But I think it's um, pretty much the same thing, whether you have it as a pledge or an appeal. The understanding is you need a good conscience How do you get a good conscience? How do you get forgiveness of sins? How can you be assured that you are no longer unrighteous but righteous in God's eyes? Well, it's the same way. It's by repentance and faith in Jesus' death. Jesus' death wipes away your sins. His blood washes them away. So, baptism doesn't save. A pledge of a good conscience or an appeal to God for a good conscience is what saves you. But why... Is that make sense? When you trust in someone's death for your sins, isn't that really a bit of a foolish thing to do? If, I, if my mum was to die for my sins and I was to say, well, I, I trust that my mum died for me, you'd say, what are you on about? How do you know your mum has taken away your sins? To trust that someone else has dealt with your sin seems like a bit of a foolish thing to do. If you're going to rely on anybody to save you from your sins, it should be you. Because you at least know you. Why is trusting in Jesus' death 
a wise thing to do and not a foolish thing to do? Why do you look for a good conscience from Jesus rather than from anybody else who you might think has died for you? Well, that leads me to my fifth and last main point. Christians are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter says here. Continue in verse 21, the uh, last bit. It says, It saves you, that is the pledge of a good conscience, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Why is it wise to believe that Jesus died for you rather than somebody else? Because of the resurrection. Everything comes back to the resurrection. Everything Jesus said while he was on earth is worthless if he didn't come back to life. And so in effect, what saves you? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because otherwise, you trusting in Jesus' death is absolute foolishness. That's why Peter can say here, it saves you, the pledge of a good conscience, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus has come back to life is of crucial importance to Christianity. Otherwise, your pledge of a good conscience is, in, is completely groundless. But because Jesus has come back to life, it is as though Jesus' resurrection saves you. His ascension to God's right hand is what saves you. You know that putting your trust in him is a wise thing to do. Why? Because he's the all-powerful figure. What does it say? It saves you by, res- by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Is there someone greater that you should be trusting in? Is there a greater angel? Is there an angel that is greater than Jesus Christ that you should be trusting in? Is there a power that is greater? Is there an authority greater? No. Jesus is the one at God's right hand. So it's not foolishness to trust in him. You trust in his resurrection and you trust the fact that he is now at God's right hand. He is the one that is above all things. So if he says you are safe by trusting in me, then you are safe because no one else can deny it. No one else can come and say, don't listen to Jesus. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm smarter than Jesus. No. Everything else is is in submission to him. No one else can say that there's another way of salvation. Jesus is the only way. So we've seen this morning what saves us. It's that pledge of a good conscience. It's not baptism. Baptism is an excellent symbol as to what has already happened in you, that the waters of judgment have come over you. But it's a pledge of a good conscience and it's not foolishness because of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to God's right hand. So I want to speak to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, firstly, I want to say to you, become a Christian. Don't ignore the coming judgment as the people did in the times of Noah. Last week we saw what happened to those people in the times of Noah. What happened to them? Their spirits in prison in verse 19. It talks about Noah preaching to them in verse 19. Through whom also he, that's Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison. And we understood that it was Jesus preached to them in the time of Noah. He warned them of the coming judgment and said, be aware a judgment is coming, trust God, repent of your sins. 
but instead they didn't. And where are they now? Peter talks about where they are now in his time, and they're still there now. They are spirits in prison being held for judgment. They're suffering for their sins because they did not repent when Noah preached to them. And I encourage you not to do that now as I hope Christ speaks through me and tells you judgment is coming. You may not see evidence of it, just like people in Noah's day didn't see evidence of it, but it is coming. Believe that it is coming. Believe you are a sinner. And believe that the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. Hear him speak to you and hear not just that judgment is coming, but hear a way to escape that judgment. And that is through repenting of your sins and believing that Jesus died for you. Only a few are saved from the coming judgment. When you consider how many non-Christians are out there and how many are true Christians... It's only a small number, really, through all of history. And it was the same in the days of Noah. How many people were saved? What does it say? In it, only a few people, eight in all. There were a lot more than eight people on the earth at the time of Noah. Be one of the few. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ now. Flee the coming judgment. And if you are a Christian, think back to your conversion and your baptism and what you did at your conversion, and what you did at your baptism. Remember your pledge at baptism. I'm sure pretty much all of you would have made some verbal affirmation of what had happened in your life at your baptism, and that you were committing your life to Jesus, that you'd repented of your sins and believed that he died for you. Think back to that, and think about the fact that you believe he was raised from the dead and is at God's right hand. And then let that encourage you to do what Peter has been encouraging you to do earlier. It's taken us quite a few weeks to get down to the end of uh, chapter 3. But remember, earlier he has encouraged us, back in verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Even when people are persecuting you, give an answer for the hope that you have. And then he's given us a number of reasons after that why we should do it even if we are being persecuted. And here's another reason. Give an answer because the waters of judgment have passed over you. What greater motivation could you have to share the gospel than the fact that you are thankful to God that you are not going to be judged for eternity in hell but instead are going to be for eternity in heaven with him? And that you can share that message with others and that they can be saved too. It'd be terrible to be told that you are saved alone and all the people around you, you can't really share the gospel with them because none of them can become Christians. They can become Christians. If they repent and believe as you speak to them, as you allow Christ to speak through you, they can become Christians. So don't back down. Always give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And also meditate on that uh, verse 22 and what it says there to motivate you. Who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. You think that when someone hurts you in this world that it's a good reason to shut up about Jesus Christ. It's not a good reason at all because who are they in comparison to someone who is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Don't be afraid of men. 
or women, what can they do to you? When Jesus is the one who is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him, be encouraged by these verses that you have experienced a watery judgment go over you through Jesus Christ and that now he is at God's right hand and so keep sharing the gospel no matter what people may do to you. Let's speak with our God now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do warn us about judgment, that you do not let us live in our sins and find out about judgment at a later date, but you warn us that it's coming and you warn us also with a message about how to escape that judgment. That if we have a pledge of a good conscience before you, if we in all good conscience come before you and say we repent of our sins and we believe in Jesus' death for us, then we are saved. We are like Noah. We pass through the waters of judgment and are safe. Lord, we pray that everyone in this room may embrace Jesus Christ. They may flee the coming judgment and become one of your people. Even though we are a small number on this earth, only a few, we pray that you may add to our number. And we pray that the few that are your believers, that we may all be strengthened to proclaim Jesus Christ all the more boldly because we know that we are safe in Jesus and that no power, no angel, no authority can harm us because we are with him. We are safe with the one who is at God's right hand. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.